religious uh, hierarchy. Uh, in, in Amos chapter 7, verse 7, uh, he gives this amazing picture of a plumb line. And remember last week, it, it's a very simple instrument. It's just a string with a weight at the end, and it shows true vertical. It, it shows true up and down. You, you can see it on, you know, any brick wall being put up. You know, it's a very simple device. Uh, you know, before we had lasers and all those kind of things, it's just a, a simple, you know, string, a weight, and it, it shows true up and down. And, and this plumb line that Amos is describing here is the truth of God. It, it shows our, our vertical relationship with the God of the universe, the word of God. Verse 7, it says, Thus he showed to me, and behold, a man was standing by a wall made with a plumb line. In his hand was a plumb line. And Yahweh said to me, uh, What do you see, Amos? And I said, uh, I see a, a plumb line. And the Lord said, Behold, I'm about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will pass over them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be desolated and the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste. Then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. And so, Father, tonight as we approach the, this last couple of chapters here in the book of Amos, I, I ask that you speak to us. Maybe it's this section that we've never read before, never been taught before, whatever it is. And and it's just that privilege that we have tonight to be able to open your word to a, uh, a little uh, archaic section in the Old Testament and, and read what it is like for a man by the name of Amos who has that word burden on his heart, the very definition of his name. And we may feel like an Amos at times having a burden maybe for someone that we know, maybe someone you called us to pray about or pray for or or maybe even ourselves, and that burden is, is weighing us down. We thank you, Lord, that you come alongside of us and we can cry out to you anytime and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you um, make our burdens light because you bear them with us. You bear them for us. And so, Lord, we do. Maybe someone in this room or someone that's listening right now, I I ask that you would just help us to cry out to you. Lord, for those of, uh, that are here or, or those that are watching that may be going through an illness or a hard time in their life, whether it's financial or emotional or spiritual, Lord, I, I just ask that you put your miracle-working hand upon their bodies, upon their lives, and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that, that you answer, you hear, and just as Amos is going to have to go through in this section tonight, there, there will be trials. There will be tribulations in every single Christian's life. You, you promise us that. And yet we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are there to bear the burdens with us. To walk alongside of us and even bear us up when we are weighed down. Thank you for your steps that go before us. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have you ever been next to a, you know, and you can just look down this, you know, this aisle right here. Have you ever been next to a wall that's crooked? You know, or, or a building, you know, or, or, you know, a post or whatever it is. 
and and you can see, you know, the the twists and turns, if you will. You go to Home Depot and you try to pick out a two by four, and and you look down the length of the two by four, and it's all twisted. Would you ever want to choose that piece? Hopefully, you choose a straight piece of wood, right? This is the illustration that Amos is giving here. The plumb line is vertical, and the plumb line is the truth of God's a word, and it always points to God. It's so easy. Uh, to get inundated with the things of the world, to, to believe what's on the news or to believe what's in our, you know, the latest thing that we've read online or, or whatever, and, and until we compare it to the Word of God. And when we compare things to the Word of God, we see the truth that is real, the truth that points us always to uh, the source of truth, uh, God himself. Look at what it describes there. And of course, this is going to be the end of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. Uh, the Assyrian Empire is going to come in and, and these words that Amos have been describing, the words that Hosea described two books before are going to come true. Assyria is going to come in and raise the northern kingdom of Israel. Samaria, the capital, is going to be torn down. All their summer houses and their winter houses that we've seen earlier in the book, all, all these people that were rich sitting on their couches, and as, as Amos in his, you know, literally dripping sarcasm describes them as, as fat cows. Their laziness, their complacency, and they're going to be woken up with the Assyrian Empire on their doorstep. In fact, that's the description here in this little mini sermonette, if you will. In fact, we've seen three sermonettes in uh, Hosea chapter 7, one uh, right after another. I don't know if he wrote them as devotionals or, or wrote them out as, as these small sermons that, that he, he preached or whatever it was, but it's the prophecy of the word of God. Behold, I'm about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel, I'm going to show you what the truth is. You've distorted the word of God. You've, you've distorted uh, how the prophets have been perceived. I will pass over them no uh, longer. The high places of Isaac will be desolated and the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste. All those high places, all those places where they had those golden calves, the one way up in Dan and, and the one in Bethel, that place that is called the house of God that they turned into a place of idols. All the Astras, all the Baals, all the Moloch's, all these places that were used as a thumb up to the nose of God saying, I don't want to do things your way. And of course, there's nothing new underneath the sun, right? Do we do the same thing in our nation today? Unfortunately, then I'll rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. This is Jeroboam II, who's going to be the last king of the Assyrian uh, Empire. The northern kingdom, the ten tribes in the north are going to fall. They're going to be destroyed. And of course, history describes it in in graphic uh, detail, if you read uh, not only Second Chronicles, but also Second Kings as well, you see the downfall 
of the northern kingdom of Israel, and it is horrific. But thank God for his mercy and grace. Thank God that Amos didn't end on this verse. Thank God that Amos doesn't end in chapter 7 or chapter 8. We're going to see how God preserves a remnant, as he always does with Israel. Thank God for that. Verse 10, we see the persecution that Amos had to go through. So uh, the first seven chapters are all about his prophetic word, his pre preaching, his, his you know, deep sac satire against the people. And of course, this caused a stir among the religious hierarchy because what was the job that Amos had? What was his career? Was he a, a prophet, you know, raised up in a seminary somewhere? No, he was just a sheep breeder. We're going to find out in a little bit. He is also a, a raiser of sycamore figs as well. These hard figs that were difficult to be able to raise unless they're per, uh, permanently slashed. Each and every single fig had to be slashed with a uh, knife or a razor in order to bring out the uh, fruitfulness of it. But he catches the eye of the priest in Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent word to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is unable to endure all his words. You can see this. He's going to the king. He's not going directly to Amos. He's like going behind the back of Amos and trying to cause a stir. He's gossiping. And you can see his envy there as well. He's getting all the attention, and I'm not. Why is this priest of Bethel? And, of course, Bethel means house of God. He would have been uh, probably the high priest at this time in the northern kingdom, of course, not for uh, the true God, but for one of the many gods that the Israelites worshipped in Samaria and Bethel and also in the upper regions of Dan as well. And so he goes to the king and he complains to the king, everybody's listening to Amos and not us. Now that should tell you something right there. But the complaint goes deeper because these guys had to go through a rigid, um, you know, training. They had to go through an education. They had to learn about their gods. They had to learn about their idols. They had to learn about the mythology of the northern kingdom. This guy didn't grow up in our training. He, he didn't go to a certain school. And, and now he's proclaiming to speak the words of God. For thus, Amos says, Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel will, in, will be unable, will be certainly go into its land in exile. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee away from the land or to the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and, and there do your prophesying. But no longer prophesy at Bethel, for it is a sanctuary of the king and his royal house. Now you kind of see the behind the scenes. What what is he saying that Amos is doing while the king is in his royal palace enjoying life. You're disturbing us with your truth. You're disturbing us and showing us uh, these hard times, these, these sins that we have. You're turning things upside down. You're, you're you know, making us uncomfortable with the truth. 
right? Have you ever talked to someone about God or Jesus Christ and they get uncomfortable and, and, and then, you know, hopefully, you know, you don't change the subject, but they want you to change the subject. They bring up sports or they bring up the weather or they bring up something else. What is Amos doing? He's putting it right in their face. What, what is the love of a prophet for his people? He's not willing that they leave until they repent. In fact, so much so that he, he's at the king's palace preaching to the king in order to have him repent as well. Because will God relent if they repent? Yeah. But have they repented? Of course, he doesn't want to see his nation fall. What, what does this priest tell him to do? Go, go down to Judah. Go, go down to Judah. Of course, Judah is the southern kingdom. Uh, this is where all the, the, the temple is at. King Solomon's temple is at in Jerusalem. This is where all the, the, the kings from the line of David are at. Go down and tell them. Go down and tell them. Who does God send the prophets to? The ones that need it, right? And Amos is sent to the most uh, sinful city at this time, uh, Bethel, the house of God. Amos was upsetting the priest and the king, making them uncomfortable. What does that plumb line do? Puts a fire under your pants, right? Makes you uncomfortable. It shows you how crooked your life is. Do we want to see how crooked our life is? This is an aside, but you know, we can kind of compare this to our spiritual life as well. Uh, how many people don't like to look at their finances? Because if I don't look at my finances, I won't know how far in debt I am, right? I won't know if I, you know, have enough money in the bank or whatever it is. There's people like that. You may not know that, but there's people like that, okay? I'm just trusting in God to do it all, right? You know. It's the same spiritually as well, right? Until we look at the word of God, until we see the truth of God, that plumb line, our spirituality may be off kilter or really twisted even, as it was in the northern kingdom of Israel. It's, it's so amazing how the Bible, even though this was written some 2,700 years ago when Amos was alive at this time, it speaks volumes to us today. It's even more you know, relevant than today's newspaper or, or latest, uh, you know, news piece, whatever it is. Verse 14, the name is answered and said to Amaziah, I am not a prophet. I'm not even a son of a prophet, for I'm a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. You've probably heard that saying before, but you didn't know where it was at. Tonight, you know where it's at. I'm not a prophet or even the son of a prophet. You've probably heard that before. It comes from Amos. What, what was he as a career doing? He was a herdsman or a, a breeder of sheep. He was a, a sycamore fig uh, grower. And of course, these sycamore fig, figs, these aren't like the regular figs that just kind of uh, grow. We used to have a fig tree when I was growing up in, in Altaloma. And, and, and literally every single leaf has a fig. The number of leaves determines the number of figs. And of course, you know, 
it, when you when you pick a, a fresh fig, not not a fig Newton, not not a dried fig, but when you when you pick a, a fresh fig, there there's this milk that comes out of it, this sweetness. Where where a sycamore fig, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit hardier fig. It's a desert fig, and you have to actually cut it. You have to actually slice it. Uh, a part of it in order to bring out the sweetness of the fig. And of course, you all know that, you know, figs, especially when they're, they're dried, they can last a very, very long time. They're, they're meant for, you know, long distance travel, you know, like the, you know, the, the beef jerky of the fruit world or something like that, you know? And so Amos, you know, is just a agricultural person. He's just a farmer. But has he obeyed God in telling the people that he loves about him? Yes. And of course, the priest doesn't like this because he didn't go through the same training as he did. But Yahweh took me from the flock and, and Yahweh said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel that burden that is placed upon Amos. So now hear the word of Yahweh you are saying you shall not prophesy against Israel, nor shall you drip out words against the house of Isaac. And of course, Amos being the most satirical of all the books in the Bible, you know, you can literally see that dripping satire as he's speaking to uh, the priest. The words dripping out of his mouth, therefore thus says Yahweh. And by the way, this is horrible. This is horrific. This, this is the priest of Bethel. This is the one who is, you know, in charge of all those various multiple religions that the Israelites in the north had incorporated into their culture. What does he say? Your wife will play the harlot in the city. Your sons and your daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be divided up by a measuring line and you yourself will die upon unclean land. Moreover, Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. Wow, that's scary. What does it mean to go against a prophet of God? You have to think about this in terms of what it's actually saying here. The This Amaziah, this this high priest is going to die in an unclean land. That means he has to leave the land where he's at. He's going to be taken from that land and he's going to die in a foreign country. His sons and his daughters are going to be killed. And what will his wife have to do in order to earn money or make a living? It's horrible. What does it mean? When we go against the word of God, what does it mean? When we go against those that preach the truth of God's word, it's so easy to speak ill of a, of a pastor. And, and yes, yeah, sometimes there has to be discipline. Thank God, you know, that, that there's provisions for that. But what should we do for our pastors? Pray, Pray for them. They're tempted just as we are. Chapter 8, verse 1, it continues on there. Continuing with the agricultural theme, and now you're going to get, you know, the, this understanding of why 
Amos uses so many agricultural references all the way back from the beginning of the book with the, these locusts. He, he understood what would happen if a locust swarm would come into an agricultural plot of land, whether it's, it's, it's the, the wheat or, or the barley or, or the various fruit trees. What can happen? It can devastate. In verse 1 of chapter 8, he continues on with that same theme. He says, thus says Lord Yahweh, showed me, and behold, there was a basket of summer fruit. And he said, what do you see, Amos? And I, I said, a, a basket of summer fruit. Then Yahweh said to me, the end has come for my people Israel. I will pass over them uh, no longer. And they will wail with the songs of the palace in that day, declares Lord Yahweh. Many will be the corpses in every place. They will cast them forth in silence I, I you know i'm sure you guys know this but but summer fruit is very very short lasting it has a very short uh, shelf life right it's all those those fruits that look good at the store and you take them home and the gnats start flying out of them they, they go bad the very next day it seems like all of a sudden overnight they're, they're squishy, you know, and, and then they have, start to have that, you know, putrid smell. That, that, that's what summer fruit is. It's meant to be eaten right away. If you leave it in a basket, what happens to it? It rots. It ferments. It turns into, you know, this very, you know, uh, sticky fluid that's just putrid, right? It stains your countertop. You know, you, you know it. It's happened to you, right? And then what happens to all that, you know, money that you spent on it, you know? But, but the understanding here is this is what's going to happen to the corpses. That's the comparison. Isn't that scary? That, that's the comparison that we see here. In fact, look at what it says there in verse 4, comparing these corpses to what uh, the people of Israel have done uh, to the poor in the land. Hear this, you who trample the needy, even to cause the humble of the land to cease, saying, uh, when will the new moon pass over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath, that we may open the wheat market to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger, to cheat with a deceptive balance so as to buy the poor for money and the needy for a pair of sandals that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. What comes around goes around. What had they done uh, their whole lives, these rich Israelite people to the poor and the needy of the land? They had cheated them out. And of course, this is before, you know, digital scales. This is before those scales that, you know, you could, you know, actually could actually adjust the uh, weight on, you know, and you know, those older analog scales that had the thing. And you can actually... Make it less, you know. You can make yourself weigh five pounds less or whatever it was. And now it's all digital scales, of course. But back then they had they had a, a scale that was a weight. So on one side there was the, what was called the shekel, which was a, a standard measurement of weight. And then whatever you were buying, the, in terms of the money you were putting in, uh, was put onto the other side. And so they would literally make the bushel, which was the measurement of how much wheat you would get or barley or, or you know, whatever produce you were buying, 
they would make it smaller and they would put the weight on the other side of the shekel so that it weighed more. So you would have to put more money on the scale to make the balances level. They were cheating the people. Kind of like, you know, gas today or something like that. Uh, the, the, and by the way, they dreamed of doing this. They, they, they dreamed of cheating. They, they looked forward to these times when they could cheat their fellow countrymen. You understand why they're being judged? But by the way, remember that Jacob was known for his deception? Israel, Jacob turned into Israel, was known for his deception. In fact, when we get to Obadiah, the very next book after this, we're going to go into a little bit more detail on this, but Jacob was known for deception. Jacob was known for deceiving his twin brother. Jacob was known, Israel was known for deceiving his dad. Jacob was known for deceiving his uncle even. His whole life was about deceit. In fact, his name means heel grabber until God changed it into Israel. They're going back to their deceptive practices. In verse 7, it says, Yahweh is sworn by the lofty pride of Jacob. And there it is, using his old name instead of Israel. U using the name of deception rather than the name of praise. Using the old name that he had been born with of a heel grabber, a deceiver, instead of the name that God gave him after he wrestled with God. He was full of pride, full of deceit. Indeed, I will never forget any of your works. Because of this will not the land tremble and everyone who inhabits it mourn. Indeed, all of it will rise up like the Nile and it will be tossed about and subside like the Nile of Egypt. And it will be in that day, declares Lord Yahweh, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Then I will overturn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on every head. And I will make it a time of mourning for an only son. And the end of it will be like a bitter day. Have you ever walked along the bike path? You know, the river is like so high now. All, all the you know, outer areas where, you know, the, the watershed is at, there's just literally almost up to the edge of the bike path, you know. It, it's amazing. But what happens when that receipt, you know, where, when there's mud, you know, when, when there's the mosquitoes and all the, you know, consequences of a, of a flood? We see it here, you know, in terms of what's going to happen. This is going to happen to the people of Israel where the Assyrian Empire is going to flood the land so much so that the dust is going to prevent the sun from shining. It's going to look like dark at noon. It's going to look like there is night and broad daylight when all these armies are coming to come destroy Israel. But by the way, you know, the, the previous book that we just read was the book of Joel, and it describes the day of the Lord, of course, referring to a lot of these same uh, events. And when you're not following the Lord, what is the day of the Lord to you? 
It's scary. It should make us tremble. And of course, if we're in the Lord, if we're following the Lord, it's in a you know a day of encouragement. It's actually a day of, of rejoicing when God uh, destroys his enemies. You can choose even today. You can choose now. Do I want to follow God or do I want to uh, go after the things of the world or do my own thing? And of course, Israel had been warned over and over and over again. In fact, Amos, in his, in his burden for them, in his love for them, wants them to repent. He, wa he wants them to change. He doesn't want any of these things to have to happen. But who has decided to rebel? The Israelites have. Verse 11, the end of this chapter here, it says, The old days are coming, declares Lord Yahweh, and I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or, or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of Yahweh. People will wander from sea to sea and, and from the north even to the east, and, and they will go to and fro to seek the word of Yahweh, but they will not find it. That, that's the, by the way, that's the scariest punishment that God can bring uh, on anyone. More than the Assyrians, more than the Babylonians, more than the Greeks, more than the Romans, more than any other uh, nation that would come against uh, the people of Israel. God is saying there's going to be a time where you're going to seek me and you're not going to be able to find me. It's the scariest place to be in. In fact, they're going to search for a prophet. They're going to search for a true person that's preaching the word of God. They're going to search for the word of God and they're not going to be able to find it. We find this period actually in, in the Bible. It's the part that's between the Testaments. It's the part between Malachi and Matthew. What's called the 400 years of silence where there's not a single prophet that comes to the land until John the Baptist comes on the scene. It, it, it's that time when Malachi ends his words, and we'll talk about this more when we get to the end of the, the Old Testament, that, that period of time where no true prophet of God speaks to the people of Israel. And they're hungry. They're hungry. Lord, when are you going to give us a, a fresh word? When, when are you going to send a, a prophet to tell us, uh, what your word is. When, when are you going to send your Messiah? They've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting until John the Baptist comes on the scene and prepares the way for who? Jesus Christ. The way of the Lord. Maybe there's been a time in your life where it feels like, you know, your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling. Or you feel like, you know, God's not listening. What, what does God want us to do during those times? Seek him. Seek him. Read the word of God. Seek the word of God. Thank God that we have the word of God, right? Thank God that not only do we have the scriptures, but we have, you know, and, and we're, we're blessed with not only, you know, uh, this church, but there's many good uh, Bible teaching churches in, in Bakersfield and and also, you know, of course, uh, good uh, uh, sermons that we can listen to are good uh, pastors. Of course, you have to always 
check them out with the Word of God, even, even online. Uh, thank God that we are, you know, literally um, blessed with so many different preachers and pastors. In, in this church, even. Thank God that we have a plethora of, you know, people that serve, that are, that are even right now teaching your kids, right? You know, that, that teach on Sundays and on Fridays and on Mondays and, and throughout the week. We are truly blessed here. But what happens when we leave the truth of the Word of God? Yeah, trouble happens. You want it, got it. The worst thing that can happen to us, the silence of God. In verses 13 and 14, it says, In that day the beautiful virgins, the choice men, they'll faint from thirst. As for those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, who say, as your God lives, O Dan, and, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fall and not rise again. All these people with, you know, lots of energy are going to look for the word of God and they're not going to be able to find it. But by the way, it's always compared to, and especially in this section, it's a thirst for water or it's a hunger for bread. And what does Jesus say? I love it. And, and again, there's been 400 years between Malachi and, and Matthew when Jesus comes on the scene and he goes to a person, a woman in the town of, it just happens to be, this is always the perfect will of God. It's always the way God works. He comes to the city of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom that we're talking about right now. I mean, it's amazing what you see when you just, you know, look at the New Testament compared to the Old Testament. Of course, you know, that this town of Samaria is mentioned multiple times in the book of Amos. This is the capital city of the northern empire. He's saying you're going to thirst for the word of God and the word of God comes right to them. And what does Jesus say to that woman at the well? It's found in John chapter 4. The woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. They would never have talked to this woman, by the way. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How do you, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, being a Samaritan woman? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. This is how the people and the northern kingdom are going to come back as they're going to come back as as half-breeds, they're going to come back to their, their same city where they used to dwell in Samaria. But the Jews are going to shun them because of, you know, their perceptions of the northern kingdom. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you Tying it all in. Isn't that amazing? Ties it all in. And, and by the way, what does Jesus describe himself as the bread of life? Living water. This well that she go, later goes on to describe as being dug by her great, 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 great grandfather, Jacob himself. This well that she would have to come to in the middle of the day because of her shame. 
because not only had she been married to six husbands before, but was now living with someone that wasn't her husband. The shame of it all. And what does Jesus do? He actually talks to her. The mercy and the grace of God. He is the word of life. He is the living water. In verse 11, 1 John, or John chapter 4, she said, this is the amazing thing. Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then are you going to get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and, and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Uh, Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst ever. But the water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Anything in this world is going to be having to, you know, you're going to have to go back to it. It's temporary. It doesn't fulfill. But who does? Living water, the word of God. And, and by the way, I, I love this illustration because she didn't have to go seeking for him. He came seeking for her. He came seeking for the Samaritan. The ones that had rejected him. 700 years before, he came looking for them. And of course, what does she do after that? She goes back and tells everybody. She tells everybody, I found this guy who knows all about me. Isn't that amazing? And he still accepts me. Thank God. Wow. That, that's the true living word. That, that's the real uh, bread of life. Thank God again that, you know, Amos didn't end in chapter 7 because now we get to see the grace of God because he will reach out to the Israelites. He will leave a remnant. He will save some, as he promises to do all the time. Chapter 9, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capital so the thresholds will quake. Break them on the heads of them all. Then I will kill the rest of them with the sword. Uh, not one of them who can flee will flee, and not one of them who can survive will escape, and though they dig into Sheol, from there will my hand take them, and though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down, though they hide on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them, and though they conceal themselves from my eyes on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it will bite them, and though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword and it kill them, and I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. Does God discipline his people? What's the purpose? What, what's always the purpose? We've talked about this over and over again. What is always the purpose of God's discipline? Is, is it to, you know, shun us or to sh you know, make us go away? No, it's always to draw us to him. It's the, it's the prodigal son. It's the remembrance of us remembering the goodness of God. It was better for the servants of my father's house than it is for me here in this pigsty as I'm eating these corn cobs that have already been slobbered on by the pigs. Right? Verse 5, it continues on. Now, now Lord Yahweh of hosts, that name that describes God, 
as the one who is in charge of all the hosts of heaven, the angel armies themselves, the one who touches the land and so that it melts, and all those who inhabit it mourn, and all of it rises up like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of Egypt, the one who builds up his upper chambers in the heavens and has founded his vaulted dome over the earth, the one who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth, Yahweh is his name. This is why we've been going through the uh, legacy standard uh, Bible just for the minor prophets here. It, it actually tells us that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D that is in the normal translation of the New King James or, or the New American Standard or the ESV or various other uh, uh, translations of the Bible that actually changes that into Yahweh, the name of God. And for this very reason, by the way, so that we can actually see when that name of God pops up because it shows his personal nature. And by, by the way, the description here is just absolutely awesome. Truly, by the definition of the word, uh, what is the power and omnipotence of God like? Who controls nature itself? It's very descriptive there. Just one touch and the land melt. The one who controls all, not only the weather patterns, but also uh, the heavens themselves. The shape of the atmosphere. All those different um, stratospheres or fears that are on the earth, that surround the earth, that, that God literally controls. Written about before it was even truly understood, too. It's just truly awesome. But it gets better, by the way, because God's omnipotence, yes, that's amazing. He's, he's powerful. He, he can, you know, do amazing things. He holds the entire universe in the palm of his hand, the Psalms say. But there's something even greater than his omnipotence. There's something even greater than his omniscience. There's something even greater uh, than his omnipresence. There's, there's something even greater than, than all these attributes. It's his love. It's his love for us. And by the way, he's going to describe that in clear detail here in the last chapter. Are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me, O sons of Israel, declares Yahweh? Have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt? By the way, the Israelites are the only people that God has preserved for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. In fact, just a week and a half ago, they celebrated their, their 75th uh, birthday as a recognized nation of the, the UN, okay? And of course, how did they get there? God preserved them. How many times should they have been literally exterminated? Not only in the Assyrians, but also the Babylonians and also multiple nations after that. And of course, even in our modern times, they should have been exterminated. But did God preserve them? His love and his mercy, he brought them out of Egypt. All those other nations, by the way, all these other nations, they're no more. All these other nations are no more. The Philistines from Kaftor and the Arameans and from Kerr, behold, the eyes of Lord Yahweh are on the sinful kingdom and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. 
For behold, I am commanding, and I love this verse, and I will shake the house of Israel from among all the nations as grain is shaken in the sieve, and not a kernel will fall the ground. God's going to bring his people back. God, God, God's going to bring his people back to their very land. And that was the celebration that happened just a week ago. And, you know, of course, in May 14, 1948, uh, the nation of Israel became a nation again uh, for the whatever time it was. And they celebrated their 75th birthday, May 14th, 2023. The celebration that, you know, goes on and on and on and on. They're still a nation. They're still a nation. And where are they at? In their land. Why? Because God brought them back from all the other nations. God brought them back. From all the nations throughout the world. And he's going to do that again, by the way. He's going to bring them back during the time of Ezra and during the time of, of Nehemiah as well. Verse 10, all the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say the calamity will not overtake or confront us. But what will happen to those that don't believe? What's going to happen? In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth david and wallop its breaches i will also raise up its ruins i will rebuild it as in the ancient days you go to jerusalem today and you find that this is true that they may possess the remnant of edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares yahweh who does this behold days are coming declares yahweh when the plowman will overtake the reaper and, and the treader of grapes him who sows uh, seed. And for us that are kind of, you know, agri agriculturally impaired or have brown thumbs instead of green thumbs, this literally means a, a bounty of harvest, where, where literally the person who is plowing is going to overtake the person that's putting in the seed. There's going to be that much food in the land. And Israel, of course, it's very similar to the central uh, of California, the, the central area of California, the, the, you know, the area, this, this valley that we have that, that's, you know, blessed agriculturally. It's very similar in Israel, just one third the size where they, they have all these abundance of agriculture. Why? Because God gave it to them. And God, God's blessing him. But there's going to be a time where it's going to be even better than it is. There's going to be a time when it's going to be what's called the millennial kingdom when the Messiah sits on the throne. That time at the end of Ezekiel, the last eight chapters that describe this abundance, this thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. Look at what it says. And the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will melt. It'll go back to being a land of milk and honey. This land of abundance. And of course, Amos being an agricultural person, Amos, you know, understanding agriculture, uh, do you think he's very, very glad for this? Yeah. He gets to describe it. God shows him this. Last two verses here. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, that they will rebuild the desolated cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine. 
and make gardens and eat their fruit, and I will also plant them on their land. The promise of God, not going to be taken to another area of the world or, or given another plot of, of another nation or being integrated into another nation. No, the promise was that they would come back to their land. Has it been fulfilled? Thank God. And by the way, it's going to be filled even better. Right, right now, they still don't inherit the entire land, but they will one day. They will one day. And again, you can read that in the last part of the book of Ezekiel. Or you can look it up because I we did this actually, I don't know how long ago it was, but six months or nine months ago, we, we actually went through it. It's a beautiful picture, by the way. I will also plant them on their land and they will not again be uprooted from their land, which I have given them, says Yahweh. Your God, God signs the letter. God signs the promise with his name. Promising that it'll happen. Promising that it's going to happen. Does God's promises always come true? By the way, does his promises come true today, some 2,700 years later? Does promises come true in your life too? Yes, it does. Is he still the living water? Is he still the bread of life? Yes, he is. We got nine minutes left. I, I, I'm okay. So the next book is like super short. Okay, you're gonna blink. You're gonna miss it. Okay, it's one chapter. There, there's so okay, and we'll 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 go into it just a little bit. I'm not gonna you know uh, go into it too much detail. I'm gonna let you read it. And your assignment is to read one chapter this week. That's it. It's super easy, okay? Obadiah, of course, is, you know, there, there's only two one-chapter books in the Old Testament. There's three in the, the New Testament. But Obadiah is one of only three books in the entire Bible or entire Old Testament that are written to non-Jewish people. People that are not Israelites, okay? This shows the love of God, okay? This shows the, the all-encompassing love of God for not only his people, but for other nations as well, okay? The three books are Obadiah. This is going to be to the Edomites, which are the twin brother of Jacob or the descendants of Esau himself. And then, then there's Jonah, which is going to be the next book after that, okay? Who did Jonah go to? He didn't go to the Israelites. He went to Nineveh, right, which is going to become the, the capital of the Babylonian Empire uh, later on. And then, of course, he wrote, or there's another book called Nahum, which was also written to the Ninevites or later on the Babylonians as well. And so there's three books in the Old Testament that are written to non, that have their whole focus on non-Jewish uh, people. Showing the love of God for other nations. Obadiah, just to kind of give you a, just a little bit of a background, his name means servant of the Lord. So when you read through the book of Obadiah and you read these, you know, uh, foreign sounding, you know, uh, cities and these foreign sounding uh, nations and, and, and you read all about it, this, this would be like, you know, uh, you know, the, if you go up 395 there and you go to Red Rock Canyon or Red Canyon out there 
and, and you see all the red rocks, right? The area where the Edomites would have lived is a place filled with red. It comes from their name, actually, because Esau was named Red. Because when he came out of his mother's womb, as his brother's holding on to his heel, by the way, he, he, he's described as being like this little red carpet. This little red fur when he comes out. Because he, he's, he's covered in, you know, red hair all over his body. And, of course, he grows up to be a, you know, famous hunter. He grows up to be one of these people that were the man of the, you know, the outward, you know, uh, outdoor person. He would bring home good food for his dad. He was his dad's favorite, too. We'll, we'll find out more about the relationship between him and, and Jacob uh, next week. Or, or you can even just download the notes, too, because I have all the notes already, you know, typed up. I don't have to type up the notes here for Obadiah, I can, you know, concentrate more on, on Jonah coming up. But after Jonah and, and by the, after Obadiah, you know, this, this book that's going to take us, you know, very, very short amount of time is going to come the book of Jonah. Jonah is the most well-known of all the minor prophets, okay? Jo Jonah is that, you know, the, the Sunday school story. That, that's not really a Sunday school story. If you actually read about Jonah, he, he's the worst missionary that could have ever been invented. He, he, he's what every mission organization would never hire as a missionary. Because Jonah wasn't just scared to go to Nineveh. He hated the Ninevites. He despised he didn't want them to hear about the word of God on purpose so that God would destroy them off the planet. When you read Obadiah, when you read Jonah, it really makes sense, the love of God, not only for the people of Israel, as we've been reading all throughout all the other books in the Old Testament, but now as we come to these two books that are now directed toward non-Jewish people, the Edomites and the Ninevites, does God truly love the world? That famous verse that we always quote, that you see plastered over, you know, sports games or whatever it is, John 3, 16, for God so loved the... And in the Bible, we actually see that. Is it true? Does God really love the world? Does he love other nations? By the way, thank God that God doesn't just love the Israelites. Because all of us here, without a single drop of Jewish blood in it, guess what? We're included. Thank you. Thank you, God. Because we're Gentiles. We're non-Jewish. God still reaches out to us as well. So uh, just, just read, uh, read ahead. I mean, you'll truly be, be blessed. Uh, just the, the privilege of being able to read about not only Edom, but also the Ninevites as well, the book of Jonah. Uh, come back next week uh, again if you you know snooze you lose because it's going to be really 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 quick through these small books and the the new testament the good thing is they're really you know uh easy to read and and kind of go through so it, it's really good so dear father tonight as we uh depart our ways to go to our separate homes go to our separate uh uh places of work or or the things that we have to do this week lord help us to focus upon the very fact that that you're right there with us. Your guiding hand, your, your loving hand is, is right there with us. 
Lord, we thank you so much for your grace and mercy because without it, we too would have to suffer the consequences. Lord, thank you so much for removing the eternal consequences of our sin. Even though it, you know, we, we understand that we have to deal with these temporary consequences of our sins here, here on this earth, thank God we'll never have to deal with the eternal consequences. That, that eternal separation from you in a place that the book of Revelation describes as this lake of fire, this place of sulfur and burning brimstone. We, we get to go to heaven with you forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So Lord, help us to be grateful. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know you personally, that, that doesn't have that surety, that doesn't have that, that um, privilege of knowing you, Lord, I ask that you, they would just come forward, that they would just uh, want to know. That, that you are always waiting for people to come to you. That you're always seeking people to come to you. You're always calling out for people to come to you. You're that bread of life that fills us. That you're that living water that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt gives us eternal life that always, always satisfies. We just seek you. So, Lord, I ask you, bless my, these, my friends, my family, those that are here, those that are watching online, those that may watch in the future. Lord, I ask that you use us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.